Okay, we're continuing in this series uh, called Reordered Love. Uh, and today, <laughs> it's my job to try and uh, preach on that passage where Jesus says, uh, if you want to follow me, uh, you must hate your parents. Anyone else want to come up here and do this? I've often thought about this passage uh, for like a youth retreat and a kid who just doesn't get along with his parents at all, never reads his Bible, church, kind of an angry church kid. And uh, he's sent off at the retreat to go sit underneath a, a tree with his Bible, find a, a Bible passage and think about it. So he randomly opens the Bible up to Luke 14 and he reads verse 25. And he says, man, I should have been reading this book a long time ago. There's a little bit of humor there. (laughs) A little bit. So we've been covering various subjects. Uh, We're going to continue on and talk about the love and disordered love of our hearts. Uh, Next week we're going to talk about how money money is a, a source of disordered love. Uh, In the coming weeks, we're going to unpack different subjects about uh, how the gospel uh, helps us with our disordered love, and uh, I hope this has been a benefit to you. Uh, A couple years ago, I had a niece who uh, got married, and it was my privilege to to marry her to a a wonderful young man. It took place in my hometown, uh, Redlands, California, where I grew up. And so uh, her wedding uh, functioned like a family reunion and uh, of people who went to Redlands High School years ago, my uh, friends of my brothers and my sister. And it was this huge gathering of people, and it started to build in momentum as the, the, the wedding approached. We were there several days before. And we're hanging out at my, uh, my brother Jeff's house, and uh, the days are unroll, uh, un, you know, just kind of unfolding, and... Um, uh, when the Capons get together, we talk about food a lot. And we, we, about 8 in the morning, we start planning dinner. And, uh, and so we would talk a lot about food. And we had plenty of days to keep doing that. <clears throat> and we'd talk about memories, and we'd talk about our upbringing. And you know what? It was a great, great time. But something happened to me uh, about three days into it. Uh, three days of overeating and... Uh, talking about uh, family stuff and talking about family and talking about family. And it, it, it just kept, uh, I knew that I was going to stand in front of this large group of people at the University of Redlands uh, in a beautiful place, a, a nice, nice area, and I was going to be the minister. And I kept thinking about how I was becoming dry uh, spiritually. And with all this talk about family, uh, I, I just had this longing for something else. <clears throat> So the day of the rehearsal, uh, I got the family in our, in, our, in our car, and we drove about 20 minutes, and uh, I had a plan. We got, we got to the rehearsal about a half hour early, and we drove to a different part of the University of Redlands. We drove to the chapel. And this was early June, and I was just looking. I had the, a hunger inside me to be in a sanctuary. And I, as a kid growing up, I loved this, this chapel. It's, a, it's, very, it's a very large. Chapel probably doesn't uh, 
give it justice. And so uh, my family is watching me like, what, what are we doing going into this building? And uh, it's really, really hot outside. And we got inside, and there was air conditioning. And uh, there was this beautiful uh, stained glass that I remember as a child going into this building. And there was this, this out of, just a quirky event on a Friday afternoon, about 4 in the afternoon. The school isn't even going, and there's a 100-voice choir rehearsing. And we go up into the balcony, and we sit there. And that, and that choir helped me detach from something wonderful and beautiful. It helped me detach from uh, uh, family discussions that were leaving me dry. Uh, it, it lifted my, my soul. It lifted my heart. Uh, it is my task to unpack this passage. And I want to communicate right up front. We're going to pray. I want you to know that Jesus says this uh, really shocking sentence in order to love us better, to love our souls better, and to help our disordered loves become ordered. We pray with me. Father, I pray in these moments that you will uh, reveal to us the things that have been secondary and should stay secondary, and we have put primary. The things that are good that we have made ultimate. The things that are, uh, are right, we have made uh, the idols of our heart. I pray that this will make sense to people, to this gathered group. We cry out to you that you will help us, and, and it, not only in the sermon, but you'll help us take the Lord's Supper as a result of what has been said. And we want to find Jesus. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So, so here it is. Uh, there it is. I can't change it. <laughs> I can't change these words. Look at verse 20, 25. Great crowds. Man, if you were a disciple, wouldn't you be excited that finally we got something going? A, a movement. We got it going here. We got some crowds. Jesus, don't say anything that will diminish the crowd. Just be cool. And he stops, and you can just imagine him just gesturing to this large crowd. And one commentator says that he atomized their thoughts. He, he, he shattered them. He exposed their hearts. And he says this. He says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, it has a kind of culmination. uh, And yes, even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. Jesus is holding forth hyperbole and exaggeration. Surely the Bible teaches us that we're to love our families. One of the great commandments, right in the middle of the Ten Commandments, is honor your father and mother. Uh, Atheists, by the way, love to take this passage and jump all over it in their great wisdom and say, look, the Bible says love your enemies, but look, Jesus says hate your parents. See how inconsistent the Bible is? You can't commit the error of coming up with theology at a first glance. 
John Gerstner, who was a mentor of R.C. Sproul, he's the one who would say you cannot just make the, the, the at-a-glance look at a Bible text. Jesus is uh, stopping them in their tracks. They're, they have different motivations. Uh, it's a crowd. Uh, no doubt Jesus is popular. No doubt people are excited to follow him. Uh, it has its benefits. Who knows when he might heal? Who knows when he might feed people? Who knows where this is going? It might be of great benefit to follow Jesus. And he pauses, and what he's doing is he's highlighting how wonderful the kingdom is. He's saying it is worth your primary love. It is worth your primary pursuit. And in following me, you'll be instructed in the kingdom, and you need to think seriously about all your rival loves, all your rival loves. He is after their deep happiness. It doesn't sound like it, does it? It's interesting that in the Bible, uh, we are told things that we don't want to hear in order that we would experience life. We are told, for instance, that we need to die in order to experience life. I don't want to hear that. Uh, Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you need to take up your cross. And what does taking up your cross mean? It means uh, having a reordered love. It means finding life. Uh, How do I find life? By dying. Welcome to the mystery. How do I become great? By becoming a servant. Welcome to the mystery. In other words, the Bible is presenting to us a wisdom that you will not get at at the first glance. How can a minister stand in front of people and say, Look, your family's too important. Your family owns you. You're ruled by their opinions. Now, if you grew up in a highly dysfunctional home, preach it, preach it, preach it, preacher. All the pain you experienced, all the confusion you experienced, I'm glad this Bible verse is here. It's not easy for you to accept it. I can turn away from my parents, turn away from all that dysfunctionality, and get on with my life. I hope you won't do that. I hope that uh, you will find the grace of the gospel to help you uh, reorder your love for parents who even uh, hurt you and uh, neglected you. But I want to share with you uh, an illustration I think that this passage is is speaking to. Marianne and I, we lived in Michigan. I was an associate pastor at a very, very large church there in Grand Rapids, Michigan. We had a couple over uh, for lunch after church. This is what we do. We love having people over. And so they came over to our house, and they had this kind of curious look on their face as they came through the door. Uh, They wanted to know kind of what's up. And we were just, well, let's just have lunch. Let's let's hang out together. And uh, they began to inquire, well, what what do you want to talk about? And we said, we just want to hang out. We just want to to be with you. Uh, Well, is this... How important is this? They start to ask these kind of strange questions. And we just said, well, we just want to get to know you. Uh, we've been in the church a while. We bumped into you and da, da, da. And then, then, then they gave us the inside scoop into what's going on. They were somewhat excited to be with us, which was encouraging. But they gave us the inside scoop. They said, almost in a whispering tone, <clears throat> uh, after church on Sunday, we've never been to anyone's house except 
uh, our parents' house or our grandparents' house. And uh, uh, they are wondering what's going on with us right now. Uh, they are going to ask us where we were. And they were a little bit nervous. Now, uh, here's the deal. This is uh, Western Michigan. Uh, and if you're Dutch, uh, you need a duck at this moment. <clears throat> because the Dutch love family. And they love family so much that they will uh, think it curious that your last name is not a Dutch last name. My last name is Capen, and they know that's not, a la- that's not Dutch. It doesn't start with a V. <laughs> so I changed my name to Van Capensma. <laughs> and I fit right in. Now, uh, w- wouldn't you love to be a grandparent, and there are grandparents here, wouldn't you love to have family over after church, and your, your family, your kids, and have them, the grandkids, crawling on your lap, and Sunday after Sunday, would, let's be real, that, is, that just sounds wonderful. Uh, but I'm going to tell you, uh, based on personal experience, uh, there is a love for family, but it, it doesn't include the kingdom family. We have two families. You have a, if you're a believer here this morning, you have two families. There's the family you were born into, your natural family, and the one that you were adopted into. And you never get the balance correct. You never get the balance correct, but you are to have an attempt. There's to be an attempt to be a kingdom-minded person. And that means that your family is vitally important and if you, if you get this down, this passage down, you will become a, one who loves your family better and more purposely, purposeful in your love. But you never get the balance down. Now, Jesus uh, does something. He, he taps into desire, and he gives two little mini parables. And he's talking to the crowd, and then he says, these words. Listen to this. He says, verse 28, for which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and he is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. The first mini parable is about a tower, and historically, uh, towers were uh, wealthy people would build an, uh, an ornate tower, uh, and uh, it, it would have some sort of defensive purpose that you could see, you know, people approaching that you may not be your friends. Um, towers were were sort of this finishing touch to uh, to a beautiful building. Uh, we're not talking about a regular suburban house. We're talking about a, a house that would be at the level of a palace. And Jesus, Jesus gives a grand idea, a grand idea for their desires. Which of you, when you really want to go after something great, that's the point. When you really want to build something significant, you don't rush into it. You think about it. You weigh how much it's going to cost you how much energy, how much, how, how, how much of your finances? That's exactly what he's doing here. He's saying, 
don't rush into this and, uh, and just lay a foundation, a quick foundation. How silly it looks for a house to be incomplete and just for a foundation to be laid. Many people came up to Jesus and were quick to profess, I am loyal to you. Jesus, you can count on me. This is great. Kingdom news, you can count on me. Many people were impulsive in their declarations of love for Jesus. And Jesus pauses and says, your life is like building a tower. This illustration goes a little bit more inward. You need to think about how long it will take for you to live this out. Listen to that. This is not a quick uh, turnaround construction project. This is a construction project that lasts your lifetime. Think it over. Uh, In church ministry, I can say that I have seen uh, impulsive decisions. I don't know people's hearts. But it is the tendency of people to quickly uh, assume that they know what the kingdom is requiring of them, to know what it means to follow Jesus. And they say, sign me up. I can do that. And they have not thought it through. Uh, Believing in Jesus is a a lifetime, lifetime pursuit. And it will require a lifetime of killing and denying yourself in order to find the resources to build the life that you can't build on your own. That's why he says, uh, by the way, abandon everything. Uh, get rid of everything. To the original audience, he said, he said this. Uh, get rid of your possessions. And what he's saying by that is, don't ever think your possessions are going to add to the kingdom. Don't ever think your, your possessions are going to give you an advantage in the kingdom. You need to start at zero because that's where you're starting. The tower illustration is followed up by a, an illustration of war. And he says, which of you, if, uh, imagine a king, and that goes on, and it starts here in verse 31. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war does not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. All right, the tower is your life. What's this war illustration? What's this about? Well, the nature of the kingdom, the nature of following Jesus is outward. It has to do with darkness. It has to do with conflict in, in, the, in the spiritual realm. The disciples are listening, and we realize that Jesus trains his disciples in spiritual war. And uh, they were to assess, do you have what it takes to enter into this, this war-making uh, endeavor? And uh, he says, think about it. Do you have the right resources to go up against the odds? Now, I say this to say, these two illustrations are pointing out to us that we are called to be deeply reflective people about what we are loving. What is Jesus doing here? He is putting forth the kingdom and the value of following him. And do you know what we tend to do? 
we tend to think, my love for Jesus, I got it down. I got him figured out. I know how to be devoted. I know how to move. I know how to get this going. I know how to build the tower, and I know how to fight. What we generally do, though, is we underestimate how worthy he is. We tend to uh, include him in many things that we're doing. We tend to think about uh, church and attending a worship service. That's great. But the full followership, the full following, the full building of a tower with our lives, the full engaging in darkness and warfare, the full, that fullness is something that seems to escape us. And so uh, we need him to reorder our loves. We need renewal, in a word, renewal. Now, as we come before uh, the Lord's Supper, I want you to be encouraged. I want you to think about a couple of things. With our families, Jesus wants your family to be a wonderful place. He wants it to be an attractive, grace-filled experience for your children. But he doesn't want it to be a castle. He wants it to be a nice, warm home where where kingdom kingdom invites can, can happen, where your home can be a place of great hospitality, and you can model before other people the the welcoming nature of the kingdom. As we come before the Lord's table, I want you to think uh, deeply and think well of the fact that you are also part of an adopted family. And those around you are, uh, are engaged in building a tower with their life. Uh, watch them. Learn from them. Uh, engage with them. We are all learning what it means to, to be devoted to Jesus in a more consistent way. Uh, none of us have it together. But as we come before the Lord's table, I want you to think on this. And here's a quote uh, from a guy named David Naugle. And it's, it goes like this. Listen carefully. We want to become one with the thing we love. We want to become one with the thing we love. To be joined intimately with whatever we believe will bring us happiness, peace, and joy. You can't just encounter a family without saying, no, I want to be one with this family. I want, I want it to, to be everything for me. You can't just encounter food without it, without it having a kind of power over you. You can't encounter success or money without wanting to be one with it. You can't encounter achievement. Uh, you can't encounter uh, significance. You can't encounter uh, any of your desires and you want them to completely own you. That's just how we are. You've been made for a single-hearted devotion. And it's absolutely miserable to have two or three or five or a dozen places to put your heart. It's the scattered heart that never can be devoted in one particular direction. And it it feels like misery. Uh, What does God do for us? Well, he does this. Since we have such a tendency to become one with what we love... He sent his son, and here's what happened. He was always the one who understood priorities. He was the one who never, ever bowed down to an idol. 
He never, ever made his family uh, more than what it is. He never, ever departed from his father's love. He was one with his father. And here's what the father did. In order to redeem you, you and me, who chase after things and become one with them, he had his son become, become one with us. He had him become a sinner, as it were. He became sin on the cross, 2 Corinthians tells us. He became, he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. He became one with us. Not one with us because we were saints. Not one with us because we were righteous. One with us because we were idolaters. One with us because we were rebels. And what does he do? He says, son, become one with these people. Identify with them fully in order to train them in the love of your father. Show them what it's like to be part of the father's love. It is reckless and it is merciful and it comes after the disorders of the hearts of sinners. Jesus Christ continues to pursue us, not only in today's message, but in the Lord's Supper. May you rejoice that Jesus not only laid a foundation of obedience in his life, but he built a marvelous tower out of his life. And he built this marvelous tower out of his resurrection and out of his ascension And this tower functions like a ladder for us. It's a way for us to to get into heaven itself. And he came and he did war. He engaged in war for you and he fought against your enemies. Fear and death and sin and hell and Satan. He fought against them all and he won. And he wants to share his victory with you uh, in this supper. Let's pray. Our Father.